Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we are introduced to Malifaux's extensive network of arcanist safe houses, where operatives can lie low in times of trouble. But with Ramos gone, the safe houses are no longer as safe as they once were. I hope you enjoy part one of Dead Man's Clock, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Big Joe's Safe Houses. Tired of bland hotel suites or cramped secret rooms in attics? Big Joe's combines the safety of a fortified panic room with those little personal touches that will make your stay unforgettable. Each guest will be greeted with a mint on their pillow and a revolver under the mattress for their protection. Dead Man's Clock by Tim Akers Caspin ran the last twenty yards at a dead sprint. The bulls were hot on her trail, maybe two minutes behind, and they had a pack of those iron dogs with them. The bulls she could outrun. No one outran the dogs. She needed to find some place to hide. Or better, she needed to find that son-of-a-bitch Thomas and beat him into a bloody pulp for ditching her back at the warehouse. Everything had been going so well. They had slipped into the guild warehouse without drawing the attention of the guards. She and Thomas even made it into the archives. Thomas was halfway through the spell his contact in the Union had given him when things started going sour. The big oaf had triggered some kind of alarm, and that bitch with the tattoos and big damn sword found them. One of those witchling handlers. One look at the runes on her sword and the crawling ink of her tattoos, and Thomas had booked it out of there, leaving Caspin behind to deal with the consequences. Gonna kill him, she muttered between gasping breaths. Find him, cut him, kill him. Bastard leaves me behind like that. Start with that damned smile and cut from there. Damn it. Caspin hammered into the shelter of the leaning water tower and slid to a halt. There was something in the skies, circling slowly among the stars. The red dot of its eye flickered over the rooftops. Watcher. Whatever Thomas had been up to, it had drawn the guild's full attention. Easy smash and grab, eh, Thomas? Caspin muttered to herself. This doesn't feel so easy. A strange murmur rose at the other end of the courtyard. Caspin tucked herself against the base of the water tower. The silver glint of the cat-like profile of one of the mechanical hunters flashed along the courtyard's perimeter, heavy paws clattering against stone as it trotted through the shadows. Fear gripped Caspin's heart. Not fear of getting caught. She had faced the law before. 
Rather, it was fear of those machines. So nearly alive, yet heartless, dead glass eyes whirring as they scanned the courtyard. She gripped the tiny revolver in her jacket. Five bullets for the dog, one for herself. She'd rather die than be caught by those things. But the hunter was not the source of the murmur. Moments after the Iron Hound appeared, it was joined by another shape, this one hunched and awkward, lurching into the moonlight. A heavy grey cloak and hood covered its form, and a two-handed sword stretched over its shoulders like a crucifix. Its head twitched from side to side, scenting the air. Stalkers? What the hell? Caspin pried her fingers off the revolver and crept, slowly, so very slowly, around the water tower. As soon as she was out of sight, she started running again. She imagined she could hear the witchling stalker chasing her, its shrouded, snuffling face inching closer, but she dared not look back. The farther from the courtyard she got, the faster she ran, trading stealth for speed. Sliding around a corner, Caspin raced down a narrow alleyway. The warehouses faded into residential buildings. She zigged and zagged her way through back alley dumpsters and piles of discarded refuse. Something was following her. She could hear it crashing through barrels. Whether it was an iron-bright hunter, one of the stalkers, or something else entirely, she couldn't tell. She just tried to run faster and faster. At the end of the alley, she leapt over a fence, rolled into a backyard, and barreled into a trash can. The resulting clatter drew barking dogs. A light went on in the nearest house. She dug through the tiny garden that lined the yard, snagging her coat on brambles before slithering through the opposite fence and into the next lot. This place looked abandoned. She risked running down the side of the house. Maybe she could force the door and find some place to hide inside. Maybe. Maybe. She was nearly to the door when a big hand reached out of the shadows and grabbed her. Caspin's shriek of terror was cut short. The figure's sweaty palm clamping down on her lips as it pulled her into the darkness. She struggled, but strong arms wrapped around her chest, pinning her in place. Caspin, you idiot, it's me. Thomas' voice hissed in her ear. She went limp with relief, followed by rage. She bit into the meat of his palm. He grunted and pulled it away. You left me to die, she whispered, then kicked down at his shin. He dropped her, backing away. She could just make out the shape of the fledgling wizard. Caspin drew her pistol. Where the hell did you go? I'm sorry, Cass. I just... I couldn't face her. I couldn't face that handler. She would have ground my soul into ashes and burned them into her ink. You have to understand, he answered. For a big guy, Thomas could sound awfully small. I'm glad you're okay. Honest. Yeah, well, no thanks to you. Caspin dropped the barrel of her pistol. So now what? They're on my trail. My trail, actually. The master said this could happen. They can smell the magic in my blood. Thomas sounded miserable. Cass had never met his mysterious master, though she had seen the things the man had given her friend, the artifacts and spells that were supposed to draw his magical potential to the surface. 
She couldn't help but feel like Thomas was being manipulated. Your blood or mine, they're almost here. We need to find somewhere to hide, she answered. I was about to break into this place. Come on. The front door should be easy to crack. She started to turn away, but Thomas grabbed her shoulder and pulled her back. What the hell, man? This is one of his places, Thomas whispered. He gave me a map, made me memorize it, then he burned it. We should be safe here. But the front door is trapped. He turned away, disappearing deeper into the shadows. Follow me. Caspin gave the sky a nervous look. There was no sign of the watcher, and the sounds of her pursuit had disappeared. Somehow, that didn't comfort her as she followed her friend. The hidden entrance was situated at the base of the house, among the shrubs. It was a tight fit. Thomas squeezed through first, before helping Cass inside. They dropped into complete darkness. The air smelled like mildew and machine oil. Thomas muscled the hidden door back into place, then sparked up his hand lantern. Caspin turned around and nearly lost her heart. The room was full of cold, dead eyes, all watching her. Rack after rack of spider-limbed constructs, their steel jaws hanging slack, razor-tipped talons resting limp against the stone floor. They hung from the ceiling like racks of meat. She took a step back and bumped into Thomas. It's all right. Storage. For the revolution, he said. His hand fell on her shoulder, and Caspin jumped into the air. Thomas' warm chuckle calmed her. They're switched off, kid. Nothing to worry about. And even if they weren't, they're on our side. Come on. There's supposed to be food and warm beds upstairs. Thomas strolled between the hanging racks of constructs. His broad back strained the hems of his purloined velvet coat, and the oil-stained calluses of his hands sparkled with stolen rings. Thomas was no one's idea of a mage, not even in the filthy streets of Malifaux. Caspin followed him through the basement, her eyes down and finger twitching against her hidden pistol. He brushed a few cobwebs aside and hurried up the stairs. Caspin lingered. There was a large machine at the base of the stairs, with a glass face and a clock behind it, suspended in some kind of murky liquid. She tapped the glass. Thomas? What's this thing? she asked. He paused and twisted around to get a better look. They don't have clocks where you come from, Cass, he asked with a smirk. Amazing that you can tie shoes. And look up here, indoor plumbing. A miracle of modern technology. Stop screwing around. If it's a clock, why is it running backwards? She asked. But Thomas had already lumbered up the stairs and was rattling through the kitchen, looking for food. She peered up the stairs. Thomas? He didn't answer. She hurried after him, afraid to be left alone with all the dead metal things in the basement. True to his word, there was food and a handful of warm cots, stacked barracks-style on the first level. The windows were sheathed in heavy lead, disguised to look abandoned, 
allowing free movement throughout the safe house. Caspin gathered up a handful of dry crackers and a tin of cheese, and then wandered through the rest of the house. It was neatly kept, and smelled like stale sweat and burning dust. She paused beside the front door, and stared at the trap designed to keep the house safe from intruders. It was a complicated mixture of flamethrower and hurling darts. She let out a slow whistle. Glad I didn't screw around with that, she said. She scooped a mouthful of gritty canned cheese onto a cracker and popped it into her mouth. Last thing I would have done. Hey, there's wine, Thomas yelled from the kitchen. Caspin winced, wondering how soundproof the walls were and if the witchling stalkers were still skulking around outside. Thomas appeared in the hallway, brandishing a dusty bottle and two glasses. Decent stuff, too. They sat at the kitchen table. Thomas screwed up trying to uncork the bottle, breaking off the top of the cork. Eventually he gave up and just pushed it down into the bottle before pouring out two heavy glasses. He lifted his high in the air. To better days, he toasted. Caspin grimaced. Better days. She took a sip of the wine, which was bitter and gritty with cork, but better than anything she could afford. Who are these people, Thomas? What kind of crew have you gotten mixed up with? Who keeps dead constructs and good wine in empty houses? I told you, they're with the Union. Master picked me out of the barrow line, said I had potential, said I could go places. Thomas drained his glass and poured another. You gotta admit, this is some good wine. I worry about you, Thomas. Worry that you don't know what you're getting into. And worse, Caspin's heart jumped into her throat. Something scraped against the floor under her. Did you hear that? What I heard was a sourpuss jealousy that I'm finally getting somewhere in life. We can't all be mudrats our whole lives, Cass, just because... He trailed off, cocking his head. A loud thump came from downstairs. Caspin jumped to her feet. A glass of wine shattered against the floor. Her pistol jumped into her hand. They found us, she whispered. They found us, they found us, they found us. Now be calm, Thomas said. He unfolded from his chair, narrow eyes locked on the basement door. There are alarms and the walls are shielded. We're as safe as babies. Another crash echoed through the house, this time shaking the dust from the ceiling. Thomas slipped his cudgel from his coat. Before his new identity as a mage, he had served as a strike enforcer. He held out his other hand, signaling for quiet. He crept to the door, Caspin just behind him. Together they opened the basement door and shone the light from Thomas' lantern into the darkness. When nothing jumped out at them, Thomas crept down the stairs. Caspin stayed at the top, covering him with the tremoring barrel of her tiny pistol. Once at the base of the stairs, Thomas stopped and looked around. After a few tense moments, he gave a mighty shrug and turned back to Cass. Nothing to see, the door secure, and everything else is right as a spider dropped from the ceiling. Its writhing steel arms glinting in the dim light from Thomas' lantern. Its appendages closed on his head, 
talons burrowing into his chest as its armoured body crushed his forehead. He gave a single startled cry before the construct's sneaking limbs reached his lungs, filling his mouth with blood. He dropped to his knees, dead before he'd reached the floor. Caspin, mouth agape, heart stopped, squeezed off two quick shots without aiming the pistol. The construct whirled to face her. Its single eye, red and flickering with malevolent light, locked onto her. That was enough to shock her out of her stupor. She raised the pistol, sighted along the barrel, and emptied the cylinder into that eye. The bullets pinged off steel and glass. The construct disentangled itself from Thomas' corpse, tearing through meat and bone, spilling blood across the stairs. It skittered up the steps, scoring the wood as it advanced. Another spider dropped from the ceiling behind it, then another. Elsewhere in the house, plaster fractured like eggshells as constructs burst from the walls. Caspin screamed and ran. In her panic, she hammered up the stairs to the second story. The house moaned as it birthed new constructs, tucked away into its framework. Some kind of clockwork worm tunneled out of the wall, flopping onto the stairs behind her. Its head was a spinning screw, bristling with barbed teeth. Blindly it thrashed toward her. She passed the second story and continued into the attic. All rational thought left her. Shadows loomed out of the eaves as she reached the top of the stairs. A single light flickered on as she slapped at the switch. The close rafters of the ceiling crowded down at her. She crawled to the furthest corner of the attic. Gripping the pistol in both hands, she dumped out the spent shell casings and started feeding fresh rounds into the cylinder. Metal scraped against the attic door. Caspin jumped, and several of the loaded rounds clattered out of the pistol, spilling into her lap. She pinched them in trembling fingers, trying to line up the cylinder. A metal claw punched through the cheap wood of the door. She screamed. Tears streamed down her face. The spider extended its multitude of scissoring limbs through the hole, planting taloned feet on the floor. It pulled its body through to loom over her. Its eye, unblinking and bright, stared directly at Caspin. The bullet slipped through her fingers like sand. The construct loped closer. She wiped the tears from her eyes and stared at it. The last bullet slid into the cylinder. She slapped it closed and raised the pistol. Six rounds. But she would only need one. Joss stood outside the blackened house. Guild fire crews swarmed over the wreckage. The houses on either side were charred, and the constant line of medical wagons crowded in the narrow street told the story he needed to hear. The bodies stacked against the curb were mostly guild guardsmen, but two of them, the most traumatically damaged, were dressed like civilians. Joss knew better. Anyone inside that house belonged to the Union, whether he could identify the bodies or not. The ruined frames of steel arachnids filled the yard. He had to get out of here before they recognized him. Shrugging deeper into his cowl, Joss hurried down the street to a waiting carriage. Once the door was shut and the curtains drawn, he rapped on the roof. The driver snapped his reins and pulled into the street. So? Kimber asked. She was an M&SU hall boss, charged with maintaining the Union's assets in the area. Another one? Yeah, he said. Fourth safe house we've lost. The stored constructs went berserk, 
Looked like there was someone inside when it happened. Nothing on my schedule, but Ramos didn't share all his plans with me, she answered. Including the ones where his constructs go nuts and tear everything down around them. He always had something going on. How many other safe houses do you maintain? Three in this district. Two more near the docks. But none of them have construct racks. That I know about. That's the rub. That we know about. Ramos had caches all over the city. Someone must have a record of that. Sure, someone does. And that someone is sitting in a jail cell. Waiting for a guild judge to take his head off. Or worse. Kimba pulled a flask out of her coat, took a pull, and then offered it to Joss. He shook his head. I guess we'll find out one at a time. Best shut down operations until we can do a more thorough investigation. Too much going on, Joss answered. With Karis and Ironsides, no, we can't slow down right now. We need to keep pressuring the guild. I'm pretty sure that's the only thing holding us together right now. Then what? We're supposed to just wait it out while Ramos' little bombs keep going off in our facilities? Maybe we get someone to Ramos. Get him to spill the beans, Joss said. Surely he doesn't want the Union to tear itself apart in his absence. I think that's exactly what he wants, Kimba said. She emptied the flask and tucked it mournfully back into her coat. The vengeful son of a bitch. That's my boss you're talking about, Joss said. Unconsciously, he rubbed a meaty palm over the pistons of his biceps. The raw flesh of the connection still burned, even after all these years. Ramos had saved his life, been his mentor, even his friend. But the old man was gone, and the Union had to keep moving forward. Take us to the mines. There are some people I need to talk to. The faces around the table were familiar but largely unrecognizable to those not in the know. They made a career of not being famous. The Union needed that, needed people who could make decisions without being particularly known. Leave it to the likes of Ironsides and Karis to draw the attention of the Guild. Leave it to Colette to attract the eye of the crowd. Leave it to the leaders to make the big decisions, the big plans, the dreams for tomorrow. And leave it to people like Joss to get shit done. I don't understand the problem, Javier said. He was one of Langston's pals, a backwoods prospector who sought out the traces that the Guild would later exploit. But sometimes he gave an early word to the Union, and they got access to untraceable soulstone for a couple of months. These bombs, not actually bombs, are they? And most of your safe houses are in Malifaux City. Sounds like perfect chaos to me. How is it not a problem? Kimba asked. These are Union assets getting torn down, and Union people dying when it happens. From what Mr. Joss says, those spiders killed a dozen guildsmen, maybe more. And only two Unionists in trade? That's a good exchange. Javier stretched his arms over his head and smiled. I'll take that rate any day of the week. Does anyone even know who these two were? What they were doing in a Union safe house, Ernst asked. He was part of Colette's security detail, a round bruiser of a man. He looked around the table skeptically. 
if we've got operations going on that no one even knows about. That was met with silence. Finally, Joss cleared his throat and spoke. We all know Ramos was a slippery man. A good boss and good to have in your corner in a fight. But he ran his own game. Sometimes we were part of it, sometimes not. Could be he gave orders before he was taken that are still playing out. Is all I can figure. And these traps are clearly his. A dead man's switch against betrayal, Kemba said. Betrayal? What if the guild had arrested him without Ironside's help? Or what if he'd been killed? Ernst asked. Feel short-sighted for the old man. We lose our boss one day, and the next all these assets are getting blown up. There must have been a backup, Kimba said. Someone who was still loyal to Ramos who would have gone around and disarmed them. Dozen people fit that description. Kira's for one, Joss said. And if she's not moving to end this, it either means there was no backup, or that person has decided not to step in. I swear, if we don't fix this, the union is going to come apart from the inside. I think I know where it might be next, Langston said. It was the first time he had spoken the entire meeting. Hunched into the corner of the room, the massive figure of Howard Langston shifted closer to the light. There's a courier route that starts on the north side of the city and heads to the river. Ramos usually took it himself, but sometimes he'd ask for a guard detail. Loyal men only. Loyal to him or loyal to the Union? Kimber asked. Langston only answered with a shrug. You ever go with him on this route? Once. Back a year ago when the Guild was really pushing on our dockside operations. Lots of patrols out, and Ramos didn't have time to sneak around. Took a whole crew. The old man made it clear the run couldn't wait, no matter how dangerous it was. And these safe houses, the ones we've lost, Joss said. Were they on the route? All four of them. Maybe a dozen more. But that's not our biggest concern, he said. There was one more place. Langston slithered a sinuous tentacle over the table and dragged their makeshift map a little closer. He'd have to raise a sharp finger against the paper, digging a rut in the table. A warehouse just east of the tracks where they run close to the quarantine wall. And you didn't mention this before now because... Kimber asked, arching an eyebrow. No one asked, Langston said. He glanced at Joss, his placid face unreadable. And some debts are not so easily repaid. Joss nodded. He and Langston both owed their lives to Ramos. Not just their lives, their bodies, their strengths, their places in Malifaux. If Ramos had entrusted him with the final secret and asked him to keep it, no matter who asked, Joss knew he would still be holding that secret. He looked Langston over. Any idea what's in that warehouse? he asked. Many constructs, and a soul stone to keep them going for a long time. I always knew that bastard had a secret army stash somewhere, Kimba said. She reached for her flask, remembered it was empty, and then started drumming her fingers on the table in frustration. And how soon will they go off? Soon. Langston said. All the clocks were set to expire within a week of each other. 
If it's enough to both crack open the quarantine and disrupt the tracks. Kimber glanced at Langston. The big man nodded. Then we need to head this off before he gets out of hand. And how are we supposed to do that? Javier asked. If we know which warehouse it is, we don't know the code to disarm the doomsday clocks. It might already be too late for that. You leave that to me, Josh said. He stood up, hefting his axe in his hand. I'll need half a dozen good bodies. Langston, if you'll... I can't, Langston said before Josh could finish his thought. The room went still. He looked around. These constructs are all that remain of Ramos. If it was his will they become active, then I won't violate that will. They're killing Union members, Langston. Then we stay clear of the safe houses for a while, he answered. They're just machines, Kimba said sharply. Why does it matter? I am little more than a machine, he shifted slightly in her direction, metal talons scraping loudly against the floor, and a product of Ramos' will. Will you deactivate me if I become inconvenient? The room grew tense. Joss held up a hand. Let's not overreact, Langston. I don't like it either. Ramos was dear to me. The politics of this is... Well, it's shit. But we can't let those things tear us apart. No, Langston answered. We cannot. Without another word, he turned and left the room. Joss watched his friend's piston-riddled back flex as he hunched through the door, then disappear. When he was gone, the remaining Kabbalists sat in dumb silence. Well, Javier said after a while, someone must have pissed on his hinges. He's not taking Ramos' capture all that well, Joss said. Best we leave him alone. Best we keep an eye on him, you mean, Kimber said. She turned to Joss. I can provide you with a crew. What's the plan? If we can get to them before they get out of the warehouse, it should just be a matter of containing the threat. And if you can't? Kimber asked. I will, he answered. I will. it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of Dead Man's Clock.